Amen. So you're joining us in week uh, four, our final week looking at faith full, fueling your faith in a world on empty. And this week, uh, we, we're going to be having a look at something called pivotal, uh, pivotal circumstances, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Let me catch you up if you haven't been with us in the series so far, so you're aware of what we're looking at. The whole point of what we've been looking at over the past few weeks has been, if we believe that we're meant to be people or that Jesus designed for his followers to be people who have a big, bold, and active faith, then what things, um, what changes happen in us to make this actually occur? Because if Jesus has called people to be people of large faith, to be people with a bold and active faith, then we need to know, well, okay, how is it that we, we experience that? How do we experience our faith in him grow? And it actually goes back to his initial invitation. When Jesus first invited the disciples to, um, to be a part of his posse, so to speak, his initial invitation was to follow me. Jesus was going around saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. Come and see what life can be like when you put God where God deserves to be. He's saying, look, come, live in a different direction, live a different kind of life. His invitation was extremely personal, extremely intimate, and it was about changing, about change of direction. Now, what happened over time, unfortunately, is the church sort of, sh- sort of shifted that. It went from follow me to believe in me. And that might sound like a good shift, but it's actually an unhelpful shift. When it was follow me, then it was you got to come and see how I live, live like I live. When, when the church started to shift it to believe in me, that's an easier, safer, way less demanding thing. And it doesn't really require too much change. Now, the problem is, of course, is that faith is actually a muscle that we need to exercise. And what happens when we get to that point of saying, it's only what you believe, it's only what you believe, the faith can get stuck in the head and you don't get to exercise it as a muscle. Eventually it gets weak, it atrophies, it becomes frail. Because Jesus didn't, didn't invite people to just believe things. Jesus invited him to follow, to follow him. And there's this great question, which I think out of the invitation to follow Jesus comes out. If we genuinely want to follow Jesus, then we get this great question that emerges. Is what would I do? How would I live, respond, react um, if I was confident God was with me? Not just if I believed God was with me. What would I do in my life? How would I live if I was confident that God is actually with me? So this series we've been asking, well then, what facilitates and fuels this active and enduring faith? And what we came to, um, came to look at, um, because we're very convinced of this, is that there are five things or five ingredients that God uses to grow our faith. Now we looked at the first uh, three over the past couple of weeks, and today we're actually going to skip one because we need to get to um, number five, um, but just a quick overview of these private teaching, uh, practical teaching, private disciplines, personal service, providential relationships, pivotal circumstances, so a quick thing on each of them. Our practical teaching is all about, at some point in the life of someone who says that they have big faith in God, someone taught them about Jesus and actually gave them handles that they knew what to do with what they were taught. I've been through it, I've probably done it before from up here, and I'm sure um, you've been through it as well, where you sit down, you hear something, and you go, that's awesome, but I don't know what to do with that. Like, it's really interesting, it's really informative, but I'm not quite sure how I'm meant to respond. And at some point, when our faith grows, and when we have an encounter with Jesus, at some point, there's a point in our story where we go, wow, someone taught me about Jesus, and it wasn't just something for me to understand, it was something for me to actually do. 
it gave handles. I was actually able to go and restore a relationship. I was actually able to go and overcome an addiction. I was actually able to go and change the trajectory of my life. I was able to now live in a new way, not because the teaching was different, but just that the teaching had handles which I could actually use. Practical teaching. Personal acts of service, we looked at as well. When people talk about their faith stories, they talk about a time when they stepped out of their comfort zone and they really had those moments where if God doesn't show up, it's not going to work. They stepped up to serve in a life group. They stepped up to serve on a Friday night. They stepped up to serve. They went out of their, out of their comfort zone to, to try and help someone else. And they had a moment where if God didn't show up, it wasn't going to happen. And when we do that, and when we offer up what little we have to God, and He uses it to help transform the life of another person, it transforms our faith. It, it makes us see God in a new way. Then we had private disciplines. People talk about the time they begin to pray consistently, or they began to read the Bible, they begin to give a percentage of their income. They started off with something, well, I've got to do it, and it became something that they actually wanted to do. Now, we're going to skip providential relationships, but here's the gist of it in case you're interested. Um, at the end of the day, uh, m- m- most stories you hear, and we heard it just this morning in both of the testimonies, uh, when it comes down to it, everyone's story involves, then I met this person. Then they came through for me. Then my parents. Then a family member. Then I met a neighbor. Then this person in my soccer team. You know, there was a moment where it just seems that God had put someone into our story and it grew our faith. And it was just like, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have turned and I wouldn't have been able to see God for who he was. It's just like God dropped them into your life at the right time. And you go, wow, if it wasn't for that person... What would have happened? And you are, if you're someone who follows Jesus, you get to be that person for someone else, which is pretty cool. And so today we're going to finish it off by looking at pivotal circumstances. Pivotal circumstances. Because when people look at their faith stories, they generally talk about something big that happens. They talk about something which changes. Often these are surprise events or circumstances, and later on they become, wow, that was a, pivot, that was a moment of which my life was going one direction, then this happened, and now my life has completely changed. They're disruptive, they're catalytic, uh, catalytic, and they're defining. Sometimes they're really positive. Perhaps you get married. Perhaps you welcome the birth of a child. Or maybe there's a new opportunity at work, and there's this pivotal moment of happiness where it just changes the trajectory of your life. And oftentimes... People's circumstances can be negative. They could be the loss of a child. They can be the loss of a marriage. They can be a health battle. Or they could be a career disappointment. And suddenly, in the midst of that difficult circumstance, you find yourself actually looking up. Life was going one direction. Everything was happening. And then suddenly, bam. Life doesn't go the way life was meant to go. And you start to realize maybe there's more to life than what's going on. And maybe you get confused and scared and worried. And maybe for the first time in a long time, you start to actually look up and say, God, I don't know if you're there or it's been a while since we've chatted, but I really need you in this moment. Maybe you're here this morning or you're watching online because you're going through a pivotal circumstance right now and you're just trying to figure out, can God help me in my circumstance? Can God do something for me? in this space because you were fine everything was fine and now it's not fine now things are not all right you had it all figured out and then suddenly something happens 
and it changes. And then suddenly you're interested or you're reinterested in faith because you start to go, I need something more. A great author, C.S. Lewis, um, said this really, really well. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So maybe you're in a season right now of loss or a season of pain and suffering, a season of confusion, a season of change, which has caught you off guard. And maybe it's awakened something within you which says, I want to I know, is God there? Is he real? Is he for me? Because we're all fine without God until we're not. And that's when our faith flickers back to life or reignites or ignites for the first time. Now, to make sure you don't think this is how Christians keep God out of a bind or cover for inconsistent behavior, we're going to have a look at something which the New Testament authors talk about all the time, and that is that bad things happen to good people. You see, for the people of the New Testament writers, so this is about 2,000 years ago, if you're not familiar with the timeline, so 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, died, rose again, went back to be with God, and his followers went around and said, we don't know how to explain what just happened, but a man who is dead is now alive again, things are happening, this is crazy, and they just go and tell everybody. And the word about Jesus starts to spread all over the shop. And these people in this, in this space and time at that moment were going around saying, I just have to tell you what we have experienced. Now, at the moment, at that time, 2,000 years ago, the outcome of being people who professed that was not a good thing. These days, in our current context, you can go, well, if I share my faith with someone, it doesn't really matter. Or maybe I share it in the wrong place and it blows up a little bit online. Or, you know, it's a little bit like we have ways of talking about belief systems and going into the, the public space, which is a little different to 2,000 years ago. Because 2,000 years ago, when they started going, Jesus was dead, now he's alive, they were hit with persecution, they were thrown in jail, some were killed. It was a terrible space for them to be. And yet, amongst all of that, amongst all the pain, the suffering, they were able to still see a good God, even when good things didn't happen to them. They saw the tension or the conflict between a good God and pain because they experienced it, but they still came out the other side saying, God is with me, God is good. James, the brother of Jesus, who was actually murdered for his faith, said this. He said that trials are tests. Uh, te uh, is that right? Yeah, trials are tests. Now, the question is, well, what are they testing? Okay, if trials are tests, what are they actually testing? In James 1.3, it says, you know that the testing of your faith, that means the testing of your confidence in God, um, produces perseverance. So the testing of our faith produces perseverance. Specifically, it produces persevering faith. When you meet a person who has big faith, you've met a person who has been tested. When someone says, I'm confident that God is with me, I'm confident that Jesus is with me, you are talking to someone who has a high degree of confidence that has been through life. Because wrinkle-free days don't generally create great faith. The easy life doesn't create great faith. Because here's the thing that we eventually learn, but initially don't quite understand. And when we go through it, it's very painful. But the truth that we eventually learn is that we don't actually know what we truly believe until it is tested. We don't know what we believe until it's tested. A man named Greg Laurie said this, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. Now that sounds nice, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. That's interesting. But when you realize the background of what made him come to this statement, it is really fascinating. 
So Greg Laurie lost his son um, when his son was 33, year old, 33 years old in a car crash in 2008. And after journeying through that moment of loss, pain, grief, and despair, he came out the other side and he said, a faith that can't be trusted, that can't be tested, can't be trusted. He emerged through that journey and he is a person whose faith has been incredibly tested and it's come out the other side as a faith which, which he believes is trustworthy. So if our faith hasn't been tested, then we actually really don't know what we truly believe because it's all good and well, and especially for those of us who are like myself and younger, it's nice to say we believe this, but it's not until you go through that you actually see whether what you believe holds up against the testing of life, of loss, of disappointment, of grief. And Jesus actually leveraged this. It's really cool. Um, he leveraged this to test his disciples' faith all the time. He constantly created these pivotal circumstances to test them and get them ready for what was coming. Here's an interaction which is really interesting. So Jesus is talking with his disciples about what's going to happen. And this is what he says to Peter. He says, your faith in me is about to be tested big time. It's in uh, Luke chapter 22. It says, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. That sounds really nice, right? Like Jesus is there, Peter, one of the disciples following him, and Jesus saying, Peter, I pray your faith in me does not fail. Wow, that's, that sounds nice. But imagine you're Peter for a second. Why do you think my faith's going to fail? Why do you need to pray for the rest of them? Why, what's happening here? Peter gets offended. Why are you praying for me? <laughs> Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. He believed that. Jesus is there. Simon, I pray for you. Um, because name's Simon Peter. Simon, I pray for you that your faith uh, is going to get tested. And he's like, wait a second. I'm re- I believe I'm going to go with you to jail. I'll go with you to death. Peter thought that, but that belief hadn't been tested yet. And when his faith was tested that very night, only a few hours later, uh, he failed. It wasn't ready. He made a claim and a belief that wasn't tested, wasn't true, and he failed the mark. So right after this happens, right after Peter makes this bold declaration, I'm with you, Jesus, no matter what. It's just a few hours later that to a 13-year-old girl, he denies ever meeting Jesus. He denies Jesus three times. He's not with Jesus. Jesus has been arrested. He's getting tested and tried over there. And he's just there trying to find out what's happening. A 13-year-old girl and a couple of other people say, hey, you're the, you're the guy who we've seen with that Jesus dude, aren't you? And he's like, nope, not me. Hang on. But you're the guy who just a few moments ago said, I believe I'm coming with you to death. They just came and asked you a question and you've already fallen over because you believed something, but it hadn't been tested. And when it got tested, he failed. Yet, yet after the resurrection, after Jesus comes back to life, he goes and he meets with Peter and he says, I forgive you. And he actually does something which many of us, if you're looking at this from a who should be the person leading the movement perspective, Jesus actually goes to Simon Peter, the guy who just denied him three times not long before, and says, hey, not only do I forgive you, you're in charge now. Isn't that incredible? He restores him and says, this is yours. This is your ship. And it's what happens afterwards in the book of Acts which shows us the the amazingness of that particular interaction between Jesus and Peter. So two months later, Peter and John are traveling around 
and they get arrested because they're healing a crippled person outside of the temple. They were causing a disturbance. Because remember, at the time, Jesus, not really a popular name within the Jewish ranks. So they were going around healing people, and they healed someone, and they got thrown into, uh, they got arrested, and they got bought, um, they got put into to prison, then they got bought out, and they were before Annas and, Ca- and Caiaphas, the people who had arrested, arrested and taken Jesus to Pilate, and who had advocated for the crucifixion of Jesus. And here's Peter now, having been arrested, facing these people, and they ask him a question. He gets another shot of this, another pop quiz. They ask Peter and John, by what name did you do this? All right, you've gone, you've healed this person, and we need to know, are you on our team or are you not on our team? Because if you're not on our team, that's bad news for you. If you are on our team, great, we can do this the proper way and you can fall back in line with us. So they had another moment, another moment for, for Simon Peter. What's he going to do? Is he going to just throw Jesus under the bus again and deny, no, it wasn't the name of Jesus, I'm going to go and say, yeah, it was Yahweh, it was God, let's do this the right way according to you. Or is he going to actually change? Is he actually going to grow? And instead, Peter speaks and presumably signs his own death warrant. He goes confidently and says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now that's fine. He said whose name is by. Then he goes one step further. Who you crucified. Oh, Put yourself in the, the shoes of the temple officials for a second. They've had Jesus before them. They put him to death. He came back to life. People are saying so anyway. And now everyone is just going on this Jesus train and they're not following the proper way everything's meant to happen. And then these people who say the name of Jesus come before you and you say, whose name did it happen by? And they said, oh, it's still by Jesus. And then they go and they accuse you. It's the one you put to death. It's, it's the person who you made suffer. It's the person you put to death, but you but who you couldn't keep dead. He says, who God raised from the dead, it's because of that that this man stands before you healed. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that, huh, these unschooled, ordinary men, they'd been with Jesus. Because they're speaking with a confidence and they're speaking with an assuredness that just is astonishing. They were astonished. They took note that he was with Jesus. A tested faith is how you discover if you have real faith. Peter and John were set free. They went and had a prayer meeting with other believers. And what did they ask them to pray for? They said, pray for boldness because they were so confident in God. They had a big faith, a faith that had been tested, had been pruned, and had been built back up strong again in God. And the point is this. Unforeseen circumstances can be pivotal to the development of our faith or they can undermine our faith. When the grief happens, when the loss happens, when the difficulty happens, when the testing happens, there is a moment where you either turn to God or you turn from God. So the question is, for you and I, is what makes that difference? What makes the difference between someone who goes through the loss of a marriage and come out the other side saying God is still good, and someone over here goes through the loss of a marriage and comes out the other side saying God has forsaken me? What's the difference between someone who goes to a third world country and goes to a space where people are not treated the way they deserve to be treated and they come back saying, how can I be an agent of God's goodness in this world? And someone can see the horror in our world come back and say, there is no God. It's the same circumstance, but two completely different ways of viewing it. How does that happen? What's the difference between a faith-building pivotal circumstance and a faith-shattering pivotal circumstance? 
there's three things that make the difference. The three things are what we believe, who we listen to, and how we frame it. What we believe, who we listen to, and how we frame it. That's what changes a pivotal circumstance to either be something that builds up our faith or can shatter our faith. So what we believe. Sometimes people lose faith in a good God because they had this defective faith that allowed them to believe that God only allows good things to happen to people. Now, there is a way in which you can read the Bible and say God only wants good for his people, but you're going to have to overlook a lot of stuff that happens in there, especially the experience of the New Testament church, because what we see again and again is a church that experienced a lot of difficulty, a lot of trial, a lot of persecution where their faith had actual life and death consequences. They came out saying God is still good, yet they faced a horrible, horrible set of circumstances. So if you come into faith believing, well, God only wants good things for me, you're going to hit life. Life's going to hit you, and you're going to come out second best. That's the what we believe. That's why it's so important to have a Jesus-centered faith. Otherwise, we'll assume what's not true, or we'll claim what's not promised. And what we see in the letters of Paul and we see in Jesus' ministry is there's a lot of, I am with you despite... I'm with you as you go through. There's not a whole lot of the world will be your oyster, wealth, health and everything's going to be fine. There's a lot of even when you're down, even when it's difficult, I am still with you. We don't want to assume what's not true or claim what's not promised. So sometimes what we believe is just effective. We think God is only good and will only allow good things to happen. Therefore, when something bad happens, oh, God must not be good. Well, that's not, that's not a firm foundation to build on. Second thing is, you have to have the right people around. You've got to have the right people around who you can listen to. If we don't have people in our life to help us contextualize the pain and suffering, then we can draw the wrong conclusions. If we don't have people who have been through it before, who have come out the other side with their faith being stronger, we can go through a depressing circumstance and we surround ourselves with the wrong people and we just end up the other side going, what's the point? So making sure we're surrounded by people who build us up, who, who help us, who love us through the difficulties. And the third thing is how we frame it. How we frame it. So Jesus one day was walking with his disciples, and they see a blind man on the side of the road. And the disciples have a question for Jesus, because they want to figure out, like, you know, Jesus is the rabbi, he's the teacher, he's the one who knows everything, and we're trying to learn how to copy him. So they go and say, hey, um, teacher, so this person on the side of the road who's blind, who sinned? Who's the one that fell short? Who's the one that is responsible for this person being blind. And Jesus got a chance there to sort of reframe the issue. And he said, no one. No one. He was actually a sign of God's faithfulness to display the amazingness of Jesus in that moment. And Jesus was able to show God in that particular circumstance. He actually took a moment where they were going, well, what's happening here? And he was able to reframe it to say, you think it's sin and you think it's brokenness. It's actually a moment for me to show you love to this person. So those three things are generally what makes the difference between those difficult situations, building your faith, breaking down our faith. Because at the end of the day, the disruption, the pain, it's unavoidable. Um, everyone knows that, right? Life will happen. You will not get through to the end of this life, no matter how well you play it, no matter how well you engineer it, no matter where you studied, what job you chose, the friends you chose, the spouse you chose, the things you did, there's no way to speed run life and get it 100% perfect. 
does not happen. Disruption, pain, and suffering are just unavoidable. And it's actually more the rule than the exception. We all eventually encounter it and experience it. But suffering plays a role in testing our faith and it has the potential to break our faith. But when we, view it, when we view it through the proper lens, it has the potential to strengthen it. It has the potential to build us up. It has the potential for us to come out the other side through pain, through loss, through anger, through anxiety and see that God is still with us and that God is still good. It's why we should be praying, Lord, I just want to help Just help me see things the way that you see them because our view isn't always perfect. Help me identify where you are in this because when we can identify God's presence in something, we're more likely to keep our faith through something. On the the eve of the three days that would reduce the disciples' faith to ashes, Jesus was having a talk to this, talk to his disciples, and he said this. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. So Jesus is there, he's having a chat with his disciples. They're just about to go and experience for them an absolutely shattering moment. For the last three years, people have been coming on the Jesus train, coming on the Jesus train. Wow, isn't he good? He heals, he talks really well, he sticks up for us, he talks back to authority. Go Jesus, go Jesus. And as everything's building up, Jesus is looking forward saying in three days time, um, as everything happens, it's gonna be, this is going to be hard, difficult. It's going to change your guys' perspective. So I'm talking about the time of Easter, where Jesus is given over to the authorities. He's crucified. He dies. He does rise again. But up until the resurrection, if you can imagine the people following the Jesus train, at that point, that thing's over. So to prepare them for what they are about to experience, to prepare them for that pivotal circumstance, to prepare them for the loss and the grief that they are going to experience as they go, we have given our lives to this and now it's ended. To prepare them for that, Jesus brings them in and says, let's have a chat. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. That's interesting. As you prepare for something coming up that's going to completely change your world, it's going to completely change everything for how you thought this was going to go, I am telling you this so that in all of that, you will have peace. Not happiness, not joy, have peace. That you will be at peace through this time. Because in this world, you will have trouble. So Jesus himself says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. So if anyone has ever said or ever led you to believe that God is a good God who only wants good for you, Jesus is going, this world will bring trouble. From Jesus' mouth, Jesus is going, look, you can believe in a good God, only good people thing, but we all know and have all experienced, life sucks. Things happen. People pass. We experience trauma. Things, it's, life happens. In this world, you will have trouble. It's a promise we don't like to claim, but it's something that we all know to be true. But take heart. But take heart. Have faith. Trust me. Follow me. Lean into me, because I have overcome the world. Yes, the world is broken. Yes, your heavenly Father is faithful. Yes, the folks closest to the action who followed the footsteps of Jesus can confirm that Jesus is good, God is good, but life is still tough. Take heart. And of the things that God uses to grow your faith and my faith, this is the one that we don't get to choose. 
We don't get to choose what happens to us in life. We can choose our friends. We can choose what teaching to sit under. We can choose where we serve. We can choose what disciplines we put into place. But this is one that chooses us. And I don't know for your particular circumstance why you have what you have. But I know that when Jesus had a circumstance which he had to go through, when Jesus suffered, he didn't dodge the suffering. He didn't try and avoid the pain. He chose it. Because when the tough stuff happens to you and to me, we have a saviour who didn't avoid the mess, but stepped into the mess. When we go through the loss of a marriage, when we go through the loss of a child, when we go through the loss of a friendship, when we go through life at its worst, we have a God who sits beside us, who experienced that pain and knows exactly what you're going through. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So before we go, here's a question to keep the conversation going in your brain. If God uses people's circumstances to build our faith, what is your response going to be next time a pivotal circumstance takes you by surprise? What is your go-to response? Is it going to be anger? Is it going to be panic? Is it going to be doubt? Perhaps it's going to be to call a friend? Because the truth is that there will be a next time. And when it happens, what we, what we believe, who we listen to, and how we frame it has the power to grow our faith or undermine it. And that concludes Faithful, fueling your faith in a world on empty. So for the rest of your life, these five things are going to show up. They have shown up. If you're somebody who says, I believe in Jesus, these five things have been there. So I just want to encourage you. Stay connected to an environment where you're exposed to practical teaching. Be intentional and available relationally. Embrace the spiritual disciplines that we discussed. Serve and be on the lookout for God in the moments of pivotal, pivotal circumstances. These are the five things that God uses to grow our faith. And hopefully this year, it'll be one of the ways that he grows yours. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you so much that in the moments of pain, confusion, anger, that you're there with us. You didn't come to this world saying everything will be well and it's all going to be fine. You came and said there will be trouble. And in the moment when you had to face your trouble, when you had to face your moment of difficulty, you didn't avoid and play the God card. You didn't avoid and say, nope, not doing that. You stepped into it. You embraced it. And because of that, we have a hope and a future. Because of that, we have, we have a presence with us through those difficult circumstances that has experienced what we go through. So right now, God, for those of us who are going through health, for those of us who are going through loss issues, for those of us who are in a transition period which is creating a lot of pain, for those of us who are going through a pivotal circumstance which is creating conflict, doubt, and questions. Lord God, I pray your Holy Spirit will empower those who are going through that, to see that you are with them, that you are good, that you love them, and that they can take heart because at the end of the day, you have overcome the world and the final sentence in all of human history is going to be Jesus wins. 
And for those of us right now, God, who are in a season of joy and who have avoided that, who have gone through it in the past or who are going to experience it in the soon-to-be future, may we prepare ourselves by leaning into you. May we make sure that our belief is Jesus-centered. May we make sure that we are surrounded by people who build us up. And we may we be in a place where we are able to reframe things, to be able to see your movement in it. May you grow our faith. In your name and for your glory. Amen.